Let's pray as we begin the service. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need you as we gather here to worship you, Lord, to calm our hearts and minds and allow us to see you for who you are, glorious and magnificent. Allow us to worship you in the midst of the noise in our lives today. Father, I also need you as I preach this sermon, um, as I am imperfect, presenting your perfect truth. I pray that you would uh, present um, your truth to us and, and guard us from either my possible errant words or from lies that come into our heads uh, as we are here um, receiving your word this morning. Lord, we need you. Point us to you uh, through your Holy Spirit and the preaching of your word this morning. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Good morning. The first um, thing I'm going to get out of the way is uh, the title of this sermon, And He Shall Be Called Prince of Peace. Now, for some of you, uh, you're familiar with Isaiah 9, verse 6. Uh, this is closely attributed to Christmas for you. Maybe you've done Christmas devotionals throughout your life and have, um, you know that Jesus is given the name Prince of Peace. Or uh, maybe you've um, become familiar with it by going to church and hearing sermons uh, on Isaiah 9 and the different names that Jesus is given there as he's prophesied. Um, but I think we're fairly familiar with the names uh, from this passage. M Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This morning we'll be focusing on Prince of Peace. But for myself, I became familiar with these names for Jesus uh, by singing, For unto us a child is born, which is in part one of Handel's Messiah. I was in choir in high school and had just become a Christian around that time, and we sang a uh, couple parts of, the, um, of Handel's Messiah at our concert. And so this is where I thought, um, or learned these names for Jesus and thought it was pretty cool that we were singing like these songs straight out of Scripture um, at a public school. So that was cool. Um, but uh, I had no clue, however, about the prophetic significance of this passage. Uh, so this morning we'll be looking specifically at Prince of Peace. Um, and what you're probably not asking, if I can make an assumption right now, is why are we talking about peace during Christmas time? If you do have that question, I'll talk to you after and I'm interested. Uh, but for most of us, it just seems natural to con connect peace with Christmas. Whether it's from this prophecy we're familiar with in Isaiah about the Prince of Peace, or maybe songs like Silent Night, O Holy Night, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, these songs uh, closely associate peace with Christmas. And yet, I would bet that most of you struggle to actually find peace during Christmas time. Maybe you get caught up in achieving the perfect Christmas. You toil over decorations, fight to get your kids to listen to the nightly Advent reading, beg them to smile for the perfect Christmas card photo, 
tirelessly shop for the best Christmas gifts, labor over an exquisite 15-dish meal, or travel hours on end to be with family, you get overwhelmed with it all and find Christmas not to bring peace, but chaos. For others of you, you may find Christmas a very difficult season. Maybe you're separated from family or you're feeling lonely. Maybe you're missing family members that have died this past year or you notice their empty seat at the table from years past. Maybe there's broken relationships in your family and gathering with them can cause anxiety. Whatever the reason, you may find Christmas to be a hard season, one not filled with peace. And lastly, for some of you, Christmas should bring peace. Like you know that you're, you know that Christmas should bring peace. So maybe for the month of Advent or the week of Christmas or even just for one hour during the Christmas Eve service, you close your eyes to the brokenness around you and try to conjure up a sentimental feeling of peace. I find myself in this last group most often, but wherever you find yourself, our problem is all the same. We don't find peace because we're looking, uh, we're pursuing the wrong kind of peace and we're looking in the wrong places. So my question for you this morning is, where do you look for true peace? And the answer to that is Jesus is our only hope for peace on earth and peace with God. So what do I mean when, when I say we're pursuing the wrong kind of peace? Typically, we mean peace as uh, absence of conflict, whether that be external or internal. We are in a time of peace when there is no war. Someone is at peace about a decision they made when they don't have any internal struggle or regret over it. The Old Testament word that translates to peace is shalom. Now this, this word can mean an absence from conflict. However, uh, as the helpful video on the Bible Project points out about this word, shalom um, can mean much more than this. It means not only the absence of conflict, but it can mean things like success, intactness, a state of welfare, welfare or health, friendliness, salvation and deliverance, to make restitution or restoration. And it can also mean completeness and wholeness. So the biblical concept of peace is a bigger one, a more full one than we understand peace to be. It is primarily that of wholeness or taking what was broken and restoring it to wholeness. So yes, this does include putting things to an end that are broken, like conflict. But it goes beyond that, achieving thriving restoration to wholeness and completeness. So with this understanding of peace, let us look at Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, uh, before we look at Luke 2, 14. <clears throat> um, if you would like to turn to Isaiah 9 uh, to follow along, you can do that. It's also going to be on the screen for us. Starting in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, 
the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy at the harvest, as they are glad, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Mighty God, or Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. <clears throat> so in Isaiah here, um, it's interesting because uh, this is prophecy and in the Hebrew, uh, this is a, it's a future event, but yet Isaiah speaks of this event in the past tense. It's very weird, um, but that's how the promises of God tend to work. In the present, he makes a promise about the future, and yet we can be so sure about the fulfillment of that promise, uh, we can talk about it as if it's already happened, because the Lord has said he will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Isaiah presents this uh, actually in a past tense as if, um, God's promises are already done because he's made them. Um, and the, the land of Naphtali and Zebulun, this is the area where Nazareth and Galilee are, which is where Jesus did most of his ministry. And it says, uh, upon them, uh, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. In the ministry of Jesus, light has come into the darkness of the world. And um, this prince of peace that was promised would actually live and dwell on this earth, bringing light into the darkness. Um, and then in verse uh, 4 and 5, we see um, language of peace, uh, the yoke of burden, the staff or the, the stick that would be used to beat someone uh, to, to do a task, and the scepter or the rod of his oppressors, that symbol of power, um, those will be broken. And every boot of the trampling warrior and the garment and the armor that they would use that would be stained with blood, those things shall be burned for fuel because there will be no more war but peace. So this comes, this prophecy comes though in a time when Israel had no peace, either in the land or with God. Isaiah prophesies the coming of a Redeemer who will embody peace and bring it to the people. He will expand his dominion and peace and establish the kingdom of God forevermore, to which there shall be no end. <clears throat> so point one this morning is Jesus is our only hope for peace on earth. And he brings this peace through the kingdom of God. 
uh, verse 7 of Isaiah 9 um, connects this Prince of Peace with the covenant that God made with David some 300 years prior. And that promise included um, that David would have uh, someone in his line on the throne of God's kingdom forever. And yet, because of, because of Israel's sin, that line was broken. But through Jesus, who, when we look at those genealogies in the beginning of the New Testament, that's why it's important for us to see that he is of the line of David, because he is fulfilling this promise. This Prince of Peace comes through um, the kingdom that was promised to David and connects it with the kingdom of God. So this Prince of Peace will be that king. <clears throat> so the language from, as I said, uh, the language from Isaiah 4, or 9, 4, also implies that the Prince of Peace will defeat the enemies of his people. That makes sense, right? If a king is coming and he's going to expand his dominion and his reign and bring peace, uh, that implies that he's defeating his enemies that are not at peace with him. And so the Prince of Peace will break the enslaving yoke that burdens his people. He will break the staff that is used to beat them and afflict his people. And he will break the scepter that is the symbol of power over his people. Jesus has already begun defeating sin, death, and Satan in the lives of Christians and will ultimately come back to defeat all of his enemies for good. And the final, and this happens in the final fulfillment in the new creation. Genesis 1 began with a creation that was good and whole, where sin and death and suffering were not present. But through our sin that fell, that broke, God's creation has been damaged. Jesus is coming again to restore wholeness and completeness to his creation. Sin will be gone. Death, gone. Conflict, gone. Suffering, gone. And there will be restoration. There will be salvation. There will be wholeness. There will be ultimate peace and wholeness throughout all creation. There will be true, lasting, uninterrupted peace in the new heavens and the new earth in the kingdom of God. So where do you look for true, lasting peace? This Advent, as we remember the first coming of the Prince of Peace, may we also find peace in the promise of his second coming. We ought to set our hopes on the kingdom of God, for Jesus has overcome the world. The kingdom of God's citizenship is growing every day as sinners repent and believe the gospel and turn to God. <clears throat> its final fulfillment gets closer every day as the day of the Lord draws near. Jesus is our only hope for peace on earth and peace in the new earth. Another way that Jesus brings peace to his followers, or it, that, bring, that Jesus brings peace to earth is through the lives of his followers. In Matthew 5, 9, Jesus teaches, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. As followers of Jesus, we are called to pursue peace in relationship with others. Peacemakers implies that there is a need to make peace. 
sons of God implies that we are acting like God as much as is humanly possible when we pursue peace with others. We are to love our neighbor and our enemies. We are to be kind to those who are evil to us. We are to forgive others and to lend without expecting anything in return. However, Jesus does have the caveat in Matthew 10, 34, in which he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. So in the peace that he does bring, it's beginning and growing. Yet as he gains um, followers in this, as he gains disciples, Uh, to his kingdom, they become at odds with those outside of his kingdom. He's speaking here about the cost of following him in discipleship, and he emphasizes that no relationship is more worthy of our love and allegiance than our relationship to Jesus. Here he says that there may not be peace. There may be division and much division. Some of you have experienced that, Following Jesus may have lost you friends or broken relationships with you and your family. This division comes purely from our allegiance to Christ and their allegiance to something else. Jesus says this type of division will happen. However, Paul says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In relationships, we are to love our neighbors and enemies, to be kind to those who are evil to us, to forgive others, and all the other commandments that go with loving our neighbor. And if a relationship cannot be peaceable, may it not be because of us. If they reject our love and peace, we've we've obeyed Paul, and uh, as much as it is up to us, we seek to be peaceable with all. If they reject us because of our allegiance to Jesus, then we find Jesus' words to again be true, um, that there will be division and not peace in following him. But as much as possible, we are to be peacemakers, um, representing our king, who is the prince of peace. And the, the New Testament is adamant in many places about the peace and unity that there ought to be within the church. Ephesians 2 is one of those places. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Gentiles and Jews coming from uh, very broken relationships with one another and having different backgrounds had ho- their hostility broken down in coming to Christ and being joined to the same church. Jesus was their peace. So who in the church do you have hostility with at the moment? Is there someone, a brother, a sister that you have discord with and not peace? You both have been reconciled to God in one body through the cross. That opens the door to what can kill the hostility. 
is there someone in the body of Christ that you need to come to peace with? As you may gather with family soon for the holidays, surely it's possible that you will have uh, the chance to gather with a family member that you have a broken relationship with. How can the love of Jesus and the promise of his kingdom empower you to be a peacemaker? Again, this isn't easy and it's not always possible, but Paul encourages us as much as it is within our power to pursue this. Jesus brings peace on earth through his kingdom and through his followers. However, everything that we've covered so far is purely on a a horizontal. Um, It's the brokenness of creation and our relationships with others. Um, Is that enough? Is that all the peace that we need? Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This implies that we cannot ultimately find peace in our circumstances, even if they're good things. Once we get our fill of them, we will still be empty if that's where we look for our peace. Peace in relationships, peace in our health, peace from suffering and poverty, even a perfect recreation of the earth without sin cannot ultimately content our hearts. John Piper asks in one of his sermons, would you be satisfied to go to heaven? Have everybody there in your family that you want there? Have all the health and restoration of your prime? Have everything you disliked about yourself fixed? Have every recreation you've ever dreamed available to you? And have infinite resources of money to spend. Would you be satisfied if God weren't there? The point he's making is that heaven is not whole and complete if God is not there for us to enjoy. If all of our circumstances were fixed, but not our relationship with God, we would not have peace. Where do you look for true peace? Point two this morning, Jesus is our only hope for peace with God. In the beginning, God's creation was good and it was perfect. It was whole and complete. Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God and had an unbroken relationship with him. Joel Beakey in his systematic theology says, God created man for a special relationship with him showering his image bearer with blessings and privileges in order that man might live close to him. However, this relationship isn't singular in direction, not just God pouring out blessings, but Adam and Eve and every one of God's image bearers were to glorify him and to enjoy him within that relationship. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question one asks, What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yet, we know that this relationship that was there in the beginning did not remain whole and complete. Through the sin of Adam, mankind fell into sin and death, destroying our peace with God. 
Romans 5, 12 through 21 shows us all the brokenness that Adam's sin brought into the world and how it broke mankind's relationship with God. Adam's sin spread death to all mankind, spread sin to all mankind, and it led to the condemnation of all. Implying here that it destroyed our peace with God. However, in these verses about Adam's sin, it says that Adam was a type of one who was to come. He was a representative for many, and there would be another one to come who was a representative for many. Just as sin and death came to mankind through one man, Adam, the free gift of God's grace came to mankind through one man, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Christ's righteousness spreads life to many. In it, many are made righteous, and it leads to justification. Implicitly here, it brings us peace with God, which is exactly what Romans 5.1 in the same chapter says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's short and it's really good, so I'm going to read it again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Adam represented us and destroyed our peace with God, Jesus represents us who have faith in him and restores our peace with God. Notice this peace with God comes through being justified by faith. And this faith is not just in anything, but faith in Jesus as a savior and sacrifice, faith in the gospel. Jesus suffered on the cross for your sin if your faith is in him, and through him you have peace with God. Isaiah 53, verse 5 reads, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Only in Jesus can we find peace because only he can pay for our sins and establish peace with God. Because our sins have been paid for and are forgiven, we are justified and declared righteous before God. This removes the sin and condemnation that broke our relationship with God. Only after healing our relationship with God can we have true peace. Augustine, one of the greatest minds in church history, profoundly stated, our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. As image bearers of God, we cannot truly have peace until we are at peace with the one whose image we bear. This brings wholeness and completeness to our lives. We were once enemies with God, the one whom we were supposed to glorify and enjoy forever. Through forgiveness of sin and new life in Christ, the Prince of Peace, we have peace with God to glorify and enjoy him forever in renewed relationship. So as John Piper's and Augustine's quotes imply, there is no amount of circumstantial peace in the world that can bring us the satisfaction and contentment that God does. Heaven is not heaven if God is not there. 
Peace is not ultimately peace if we do not have peace with God. So I ask you this morning, do you have peace with God? If not, where are you looking for peace? It is not found in your good deeds, trying to please God and earn his favor. It is not in finding yourself and creating your own isolated inner peace that's detached from reality. It is not by establishing your own kingdom and pursuing every worldly pursuit that's here. If your faith is not in Jesus and you have not submitted to him in humble repentance, then you cannot have peace. In fact, due to your sin and broken relationship with God, you are his enemy and destined for wrath, not peace. This warning is hard, but it's necessary. Jesus is our only hope for peace with God. And I don't want us to miss the amazing grace here. God is the one who's the offended party. He's the one that's sinned against. And yet it is he who initiates peace and reconciliation with us, the offending party, the sinners. It is amazing that he would make uh, peace possible for us. Yet the one who was sinned against willingly sends his son, the Prince of Peace, to suffer and die in order to bring us peace with himself. In the promise from Isaiah 9, verse 7 says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He promises to accomplish this. He initiates it and fulfills it. To a people who deserve wrath, God gives peace and invites them into his kingdom. Again, this plan was not promoted or thought of by us. It was initiated and accomplished by our Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. He offers this peace to all who will come unto him and he will give rest to your souls. So a few weeks ago, Abby and I were FaceTiming with her sister and brother-in-law and they told us the following story about our nieces However, before I get to that, a little background information. Um, uh, The oldest, Marie, is just over two and a half. The youngest, Audrey, is one. And my brother-in-law had been praying with Marie several nights in a row uh, that week, thanking Jesus for dying on the cross for our sins. Marie would ask, why did Jesus die on the cross? David would answer, he died for our sins. To which Marie would ask, what does sins mean? He told her, sins are the bad choices we make. So Marie and Audrey were on a chair. Marie was on a chair, a kitchen chair, standing on on the seat of it. And Audrey was on the floor using the chair to hold herself up. And my brother-in-law and sister-in-law looked away for a moment. And all of a sudden, Audrey was bawling as if she had been hurt. And there was a good guess what had happened here. Marie, did you step on Audrey? She quickly and confidently replied, no. After several more attempts throughout the day to see if she would tell the truth, she held to her denial. Anna told Marie, even though mommy and daddy don't know what really happened, Jesus always knows and sees what we do. David assured her that if she told him that she had been lying and that she stepped on Audrey, she would not get a punishment 
but she would have to say sorry to Jesus. Still, nothing. No confession. So a few hours later, David was putting Marie to bed and again praying with her as he had been earlier that week, and he had completely forgot about the, the chair incident. So he prayed as he had been, thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sin, at which point Marie blurted out, I stepped on Audrey. <laughs> so Abby and I got quite a chuckle out of this story, um, and, but I think it illustrates something very profound uh, in our relationship to God and the peace that we have with him. Like Marie made a mistake or a bad choice for stepping on Audrey, we too continue to fail and sin. Despite our renewed relationship with God and the forgiveness that we have in him for our sins, we find ourselves doing things that are at odds with the life that he's called us to. We find ourselves still continuing to struggle with sin. And just as we heard, through Jesus we have peace with God and forgiveness for our sins when we repent and believe the gospel. However, what do we do as we continue in this struggle with sin? So our application this morning is to confess our sins. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I want to make this part clear. We do not confess our sins in order to maintain God's peace towards us. God may discipline us because we are his sons and daughters, but Jesus has already died for our sin and risen from the grave over them in victory. So as Roman one set, or Romans 8 one says, there is, that, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God invites us to confess our sin, not to earn or keep peace with him, but because we already have peace with him through Jesus Christ. God invites us to confess our sins, not to earn or keep peace with him, but because we already have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Just as my niece Marie was assured that there would be no condemnation for her sin and confession, we can be assured of that as well. Through Jesus, the Prince of Peace, we have peace with God. In the relational direction from, from God to us, there is peace, reconciliation, love, and joy because of his Son. However, like Marie, we lack peace when we do not confess our sins. She knew and believed there wouldn't be any punishment for her. She had received um, assurance of peace in that sense. However, she lacked peace in the relationship because of unconfessed sin. Like we said at the beginning, peace is not merely the removal of conflict, not merely the removal of punishment or wrath, but the restoration to wholeness. Unconfessed sin causes us to be restless in our relationship with God. By hiding and withholding our sin, we deny the reconciliation that's actually been achieved through Jesus. We deny the wholeness that Jesus has brought us with God. Romans 5.1 assures us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have 
peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus, we have been justified and have peace with God. And since this is true, we ought to confess our sins. We confess our sins with assurance of God's steadfast remaining love. So in conclusion, this Advent season, where are you looking for peace? As we remember the coming of our Prince of Peace, may we remember that peace, or may we remember what peace is and in whom peace is found. Peace is not merely the removal of conflict, not merely the restoration of our circumstances, not merely the forgiveness of our sins, but also our restoration to wholeness in our relationship with God through Jesus. Jesus is our only hope for peace on earth and peace with God. We are to find peace and hope in his already and not yet kingdom, and we are to be peacemakers as his followers. And Jesus has brought us peace with God, so we are to confess our sins with assurance of pardon and forgiveness. As we remember what true peace is and in whom we find that peace, May we look to Jesus, our Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your zeal, you sent us your Son, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to accomplish peace on earth and peace with us. We praise you and thank you for bringing this peace to us. Father, we confess that it is because of our sin that we need this peace in the first place. We have been rebellious against you and looked for peace in lesser things that could never bring it to us. Help us now through your Holy Spirit to endure the trials we face by looking to you and your kingdom for peace. Help us to resist sin and temptation. And help us to run to you in confession and repentance when we sin. Remind us that we have peace with you through Jesus Christ our Lord. May our restless hearts find their rest in you alone, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.